Hello, and welcome to the Let's Talk podcast. This is your host, Susie Lewis, speaking from Toulouse. And in today's episode of Let's Talk, we will be discussing transformative learning and its place in today's workplace. I am delighted to welcome Keith Jones and Tessa Sharp. Keith, Tessa, welcome to the show. Thanks, Susie. <laughs> Keith, Tessa, you, have, you both have a wealth of experience in learning, learning psychology, organizational development, facilitation, and leadership. And you have both held senior roles in both corporates and now with a wide variety of client sectors. You are co-founders and executive partners of Alchemy Worldwide, and have recently authored your book, Provoke, The Art of Transformative Learning, which was a 2020 finalist in the UK's Business Book of the Year Awards. Well done, first of all. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. That's quite a list of achievements. It also, for me, highlights the importance this subject has taken on in today's world, the fact that it got into the Business Book of the Year Awards straight away. Mm. And this, of course, is indeed where we met, a meeting of the minds, I like to call it. Uh, we, yeah. we go back quite a long way in the shared passion we have for making learning experiential, meaningful, relevant. Situations may change. We've seen that with digital, COVID, etc. But humans don't. So I would love to hear more about your approach and your book. Uh, but let's start with this quote that I really like from your book, that this approach is different from a linear line of questioning that simply seeks to connect cause and effect. It isn't about binary thinking. Keith, yeah. what is transformative learning, therefore, and why is it so important in the context of today's post-lockdown environment? In answer to this, really, it's, it's two questions there that you asked, Susie. What is the transformative learning? So if I just deal with that piece first, yeah. then why it's so important. I mean, it's an interesting question because... I mean, the original evolution of transformative learning, in some respects, isn't you. And in a sense, the founder of Mm. this particular field was Werner Erhardt, but it was mainly codified by the work of Jack Mesero. The main part about transformative learning is that it it treats the learning process itself more than uh, a cognitive exercise. In other words, it produces a, a way of thinking about learning that begins with the individual identity. Yeah. And it works on that presupposition. It works on the presupposition that you're not going to do anything unless it, at, at all, unless it has any meaning to you, hmm. and unless in some way it's connected to who you are. Yeah. So, although the, the original ideas of transformative learning had a, a set of stages, What we found, certainly in the corporate world, is that it provided an opportunity to change the way to think about leadership other than simply being descriptive. So I think moving on just to the second part of your question, why is it so important today is because, and I think that this was really articulated brilliantly in the McKinsey article, which looked to turn leadership development on its head when it was questioning why, in their view, it didn't work. And it didn't work, in their view, because it didn't start with the identity of the individual. Mm -hmm. It actually started with some descriptor that seemed like a good idea. And the importance of that today, I think, is just vast, and certainly in what we've seen with all of the leaders that we interact with 
around the world. Mm. Tess, I don't know if you've got anything you want to add to that. Yeah, I mean, I think from from my perspective, I, I would say that now more than ever is a time when leaders absolutely have to be clear about how their very best selves can show up in relationship with every stakeholder, every employee, at mm-hmm. every possible moment. Yeah. People need certainty. They need reassurance. Mm-hmm. They need help and support at this time. And if leaders are so focused on process and outcomes, they're going to leave their employees behind and potentially have a workforce that are disengaged and very demotivated. Mm. As a leader, being able to know how you keep yourself on point and what it, what it is you need to change and develop within yourself to ensure that you show up in the way that you really want to show up for the business that's mm. part of what the transformative learning agenda is about. Yes, it basically starts with the individual and his or her understanding of their own conscious leadership and their own clarity and purpose before they move it into a space where they can yeah. inspire and guide other people. So, Tessa, how do we achieve transformative learning, therefore? What's really key here, and actually the book being about transformative facilitation, is Mm. about how we provide and enable our leaders to have the skills to do this for themselves, as Keith has mentioned. There are a whole range of different types of approaches to learning which Mm. really sound and strong transformative facilitators need to have access to within themselves. Mm. You know, being able to facilitate a senior, bright, busy, intelligent professional's learning is something that requires three key things. It requires personal potency. It requires the ability to be able to create psychological safety. And it requires the ability to be able to navigate where each of your learners are in their own process of learning at any one time. Mm. There has to be a complete and utter suspension of judgment because we all defend against learning in different ways. And learning can be a scary place for many people, particularly those who are senior, who have a level of professional reputation and a sense of achievement that they seek understandably to protect so you've got to dare to be uncomfortable essentially as a facilitator before you even look at transformative facilitation this is what I'm hearing absolutely absolutely Absolutely. so why why provoke why this book Keith where did it come from oh the book came uh as an integration of a, a life's work I mean it's one of those rare experiences for me where the initial part of my professional career some 40 years ago was in clinical and forensic psychology. Mm-hmm. And then the, the last chunk in organizational psychology and applied psychology. So in, in large, to a large extent, it was, first of all, an attempt to integrate a variety of different experiences. The second thing was that what I found in the integration of many of those disciplines is that it tended to fly in the face of what was considered the orthodoxy of facilitation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I've, I've led lots of teams of psychologists mm. where, in a sense, the, so the, I, what I don't want to do is to sound as if in some way I am dismissing the, ortho, the, the standard ways of 
good facilitation, I'm not. What I'm saying is, is that, that there are many occasions when the orthodoxy of facilitation actually gets in the way of learning happening. Mm. Mm. And it gets in the way of that largely because that there is a step that the facilitator is unwilling to take. Mm-hmm. There is a step that the learner is unwilling to take that goes right to the heart of the matter. And so Provoke was uh, uh, really an experiment in integrating that experience. It just so happens that when the book was finally written, it did challenge many of the orthodoxies of facilitation. And interestingly, we had a note the other day from one of the senior representatives from the International Association of Facilitators. Okay. Who, where they, they produced a major book in the 1980s about the practice of facilitation. And he indicated that this book is probably the biggest contribution to facilitation since the 1980s and fills a massive gap. But that's brilliant. And, and I think, yeah. to come back to what Tess was saying, the transformative part of that, that gap is morphing, isn't it? And it is about mm. how you step out yeah. of your structural doorways in terms of your mind and how you also step out of your bias in terms of the way you do your job if I put that in inverted commas because we're seeing the same shift in leadership models as well aren't we yes absolutely and and I think sorry Tess I'm I'm probably Mm. you're wanting to say something that's okay one of the other (laughs) final parts is that I wanted to offer the opportunity for facilitation to move from the role of a facilitator, mm. the facilitator being a dramatic artist. <laughs> I love that. Create, yeah. To create dramatic art out yeah. of learning. Yeah, the, the point I just wanted to make, and I agree with you, Susie, about in a way that there is a similar parallel shift happening in leadership today mm. as mm. there is in facilitation, which is a shift is needed from driving the organisation or driving our learners and our workshop attendants through a structured process of activity and Mm. moving away from that or extending your range into recognizing when there is a need to focus, and this sounds crazy, but to focus on the beingness of being a leader. Yeah, and I think... Yeah, how do I need to be in order to have the greatest impact? And it's not always about doing. No, and I think that's hard. It's it's hard for leaders who work in environments where it is about delivery and it is about doing and it is about Mm. cognitive doing and not necessarily emotional being. So how do you manage that in your book, Provoke, in terms of what that means for the skill set of a facilitator, Tess? We manage that by highlighting the importance of some of the core elements. Mm. So whilst the Transformate methodology that we have developed as part of Provoke and our transformative facilitation seminars, whilst the methodology is an eight-stage process Mm. through which facilitators, leaders and learners can kind of work themselves through that process, it also highlights the individual contexts within which learning and transformation can happen. Mm. And it's only when we are really sure for ourselves where that point needs to be. So if I give you an example, 
we have named one of the dimensions of transformation compression. Yeah. Now, if we think uh, any, any of the leaders out there listening or any of the facilitators, think about a moment when you have experienced yourself as feeling on the edge, compressed, pushed, held, your feet held to the fire in yeah. some way where you have just taken a deep breath, mm. not known quite what's going to happen, and you mm. kind of compress yourself into a situation. Yeah, now, I'm sure that speaks to a lot of people, particularly. Yeah, especially yeah. given the current pandemic situation, you know, so many people have faced situations they've never faced before yeah. and have had to just take a deep breath and go for it. <laughs> yeah. well, you know, we learn a lot about ourselves in yeah. that point of compression. Yeah, yeah, loads. Yeah. yeah, whether we choose to step away from it and avoid it, even that tells us something mm. about ourselves. It's very destabilizing, isn't it? And I know like the concept of destabilization for me is key to understanding how to achieve transformation. Can you, right. Yeah, can you tell us a bit more about how it fits into your Transformate model, the idea of destabilization? Susie, the, the destabilization part was fundamental to the original ideas of transformative learning, that there is a destabilizing point mm. the individual is basically confronted with themselves yeah now the, i think the interesting thing about destabilization is that it can be done cognitively by posing some very challenging questions mm. it can be done experientially when an individual is then confronted with a situation whereby the ways in which they view situations or the ways in which they view the world mm. uh, Unchallenged. Mm. Uh, the interesting thing about destabilization, which is one of the key points of the book, yeah. is that the the process, the real process of learning, is unseen, completely unseen to the facilitator and unseen to any of the delegates. And mm. that's largely because the process of learning is an internal process. Mm -hmm. yeah. It is the internal process of making sense of whatever the experience is that they're confronted with. So when you get, you know, in a lot of learning environments, people get very hung up about, you know, the structure of the program and what size is going to go where and mm. how do you do this? Actually, from an individual's perspective, it is the, it is the ability that they have to consolidate the experience of that and make sense of it which is where the learning begins to occur. But it's completely unseen. Mm. And they often get stuck in that structure, don't they? Learners and facilitators alike. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. You know, they, they, want, they want to keep a predictable pattern and, yeah. uh, if you like in inverted commas, a safe methodology mm. to, to the process, which means they get no surprises. Yeah. Whereas yeah. in actual fact, as you say, Susie, where transformation happens is when we step into the unknown, unknown mm. together. Yeah. It's unpredictable. We don't know what's going to happen. But what we do know is that at the end of it, we will have, and again, one of the dimensions from the model, we will have a pause for reflection, yeah. as Keith says, to consider the discoveries that we've made about ourselves mm. and to make meaning of that. What's mm. significant in mm. my reaction to the situation that has just occurred? And what can mm. I learn about that for future? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, and here I'm going to be deliberate in my language. I mean, now more than ever, we need to change the conversation on organizational culture and what's happening within these constructs, which brings me to dialogue, which yes. as, as we've had so many conversations on the role of dialogue with all three of us. But, but what is its place for you, Keith, today in today's landscape of transformative learning? It's massive. Mm. Massive contribution of dialogue is the yeah. ability to elevate any conversation into a place where you literally have the ability then to have a conversation about a conversation. And that sounds mm. paradoxical, <laughs> but, uh, and it does sound quite odd. But the ability to have dialogue is to create conversations that aren't based necessarily on judgment or opinion. Okay. It's based on build and evolution. You know, if you've got a great idea, then let's have a conversation about a better idea, not about whether yours is right or mine is right or yours is wrong or mine is wrong. Mm. How do we generate something that is far more contributory from that process? And the skills of dialogue offer the opportunity to do that, do that uniquely, I think, in, in certainly in some of the areas of work that have been identified as key levers of performance. And so I think that your point is well made, Susie, actually. Tess? Thank you. Yeah, yeah if, if I can just chip in here. I mean, I, I just think about the number of business meetings I have sat in over the years where the extroverts in the room who have a preference to talk their thinking out loud take up the majority of airtime where often the conversation is rather than people listening and building on ideas, what's actually happening is people are waiting for a space to speak. So they're already lined up with what they want to say before they've even heard what the last speaker has had to say. And this competitive, debative, conversational pattern is not the conversation that will take business forward in the future. It really, really isn't. Mm. But for for leaders to learn the conversational skill to recognize when we are in an opening up phase of a conversation where the objective here is let's just get every crazy idea out onto the table without judgment, without any form of monitoring or assessment, and then let's build on each other's ideas and recognizing that there then becomes a much more explicit phase Mm. of convergence Mm. where those ideas are then sorted and are viewed and are assessed Mm. the nature of the conversation and the behaviors at different phases in a dialogic conversation Mm. are really clear and explicit and I just think so many executive teams that I've worked with would have benefited yeah from that behavioural skill set. Yeah, and I was just going to say, I love what you're saying, but I'm questioning myself at the same time, how often is that objective on on the executive table in terms of listening to understand and going through divergence, convergence, and getting to something maybe different and that's in a space without judgment? I know there's lots coming in like design thinking methodologies where they um, explicitly talk about divergence of ideas, convergence of ideas, and, and empathy, but... In terms of application in your work, you know, how much it, because it inevitably brings me back to culture. Now, I know that's a little bit my favorite subject, but, you know, how much does organizational culture and context influence the success of the dialogue around transformative learning? Massively. massively. And it, it, it affects it probably not in a way that a lot of people would initially identify. Mm. So, so if I just, 
gives two principles. The first, well, the first one is is that if we look at behaviour and culture, yeah. and you know, Susie, I mean, like yourself, we've been involved I've, so many culture programs <laughs> yeah. over the years that have yeah. sought to, to redefine or redetermine something. Mm. But what you'll notice, uh, which is becomes this is where the dialogue part contributes to it is that people's behaviour is directly proportional to how things occur to them. So how the world shows up for me in my experience is more likely to determine, uh, and my own biases are more likely to determine my behaviour. That's the first part. The second part, and this is the direct contribution of dialogue, really beautifully applied, is that... If I look at culture change programs that are based around the application of change management methodology, which looks at, you know, whatever methodology you want to apply, but it's generally a series of blocks in some direction. The big difference is that what dialogue does is when when it's applied in particular ways is that it creates the context where the unsaid becomes said. Yeah. Yeah. And that 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 one simple thing where the unsaid becomes said will be the biggest determinant, not whether or not you've got the right methodology and the right building blocks in place. Okay, That's what thank dialogue you. gets to in, in yeah. my experience. So, so when the unsaid becomes said, yeah. Tess, what happens? What what's your take on that one? Well, where where my head was going was it's the importance of creating a psychologically safe environment. Mm. And by that, what I mean is where people feel safe enough to express the truth of their view and what they're experiencing right now without fear of recrimination or being Mm. told off or being judged. Mm. It's only when I feel that I'm sitting in a meeting room of people who safely can hold whatever I need to express right now without coming back at me in some kind of competitive manner to make me wrong or make them right. When that environment gets created, that's when people can express their not yet fully formed thoughts. Yes. And it's the not yet fully formed thoughts, which are the ones that hold so much potential. Yeah. And it holds so much power as well. Yeah. Clearly, and I think it's a step from fearful conversations to courageous conversations, isn't it? Completely, Susie. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. How much do you see that? Well, Well, rarely. Rarely. Yeah, Mm -hmm. certainly very rarely in a spontaneous way. And I think that, you know, from if if I think about Provoke and what we put forward as the challenge here Mm. is that from a facilitator perspective, you know, one of the key characteristics is one of courage. Yeah. Yes. Enormous courage to be willing to step into a particular space that people A know is there mm. and want to go. The <laughs> facilitator knows it's there and yeah. wants to get out of the room. Yeah. What, what we're suggesting is is that you actually step in and it's remarkable what begins to occur. It's fascinating and it's fascinating how you can just peel the layers back <laughs> from what you're doing Absolutely. and what you're living. Absolutely. Tess, what are your main learnings from writing this book? Oh, they've just been enormous. I can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Can you paraphrase it into one sentence? (laughs) I'd like to hear that, Tess. Yeah, it's a great question, Susie. I think think the one thing that I would say is the thing that comes out for me is courage. 
Mm. And recognizing what it highlighted for me in writing the book was it held a mirror up to my own practice. Yeah. And Mm. gave me the Mm. tools and the skills with which to be able to actually embrace the the truth and authenticity of me and my approach. I mean, anybody who knows Keith and I will know how entirely differently we are, Mm. how entirely differently we think and how different we are when we're working in a a training room together. And actually, there's a real benefit in that variety. So it was a fascinating time to reflect, critically reflect on my own practice Mm. Mm. and to realize it encouraged me actually to have more courage I have to say it did Mm. excellent Keith what's your main learning I mean this sounds a a cliche so forgive the cliche to you Susie and to anybody who's listening to this (laughs) all right but it it, the the first part is I really got I, I really got what it means when people say you know I actually really got just how much I don't know. Provoke was written from uh, an internal space in my experience that I didn't know, but that Tess very skillfully facilitated out of me. Hmm. So a lot of stuff in there that I simply wasn't in my consciousness Hmm. until the conversation was had. Then it was put down in paper, and then I thought, oh, my God. I didn't Hmm. know I knew that I didn't know that I knew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. Well, well, well done, Tess, anyway, for facilitating it out of Keith's inner space. Yeah. But this is, this is yeah, the so joy. I, I think what it, what it illustrates is that, you know, for people who choose to move beyond the, the technicality of facilitation, yeah. Yeah. facilitation actually is a visceral experience <laughs> as well as a cognitive, as well as an emotional experience. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's a bold experience, isn't it? It's bold yeah. for the people being facilitated and it's bold for the people facilitating. For sure. And just being bold, therefore, is it too bold of me to ask you both if writing Provoke was about leaving your legacy, therefore? I, I can, it certainly was for me, uh, mm. actually. I mean, it, you know, I got to a point in my career after 40 years and I thought, you know, I think I've got something to say about this, that Mm. a a lot of people have said, Keith, you need to write that, and I've resisted it, and Mm. then decided to commit it to paper, and it was a a wonderfully enlivening experience. And I think think to some degree, again, to the point, when I finally choose to hang up my boots, as it were, Mm. uh, that I can say I've done my bit. I've I've, you know, this is one part and I'm in the middle of writing book two now, but it's okay. It's, yeah, it's one. It's 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 a contribution. I don't mm. remember saying to Tess, you know, when I go, I'll be in the words of this book, which is which is great, and the world needs it. Yeah. But t- mm. Tess, is it? How do you feel about that? Is it your yeah. your way of leaving leaving your impact on on the world? Uh, yes, but in a different way. You won't be surprised to hear that. No. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it wasn't so much about leaving my voice in the pages. It was more about sending an invitation out around the world to say, I find this work incredibly important. Mm. 
And the impact that this work can have on humanity is yeah. beyond our wildest dreams if we have the eyes to see it. Yeah. And so yeah. it was an invitation sent out to see who would come close, wow. who would want to join mm. our community of practice and in this field of work to grow and develop for humanity. I mean, this takes it beyond business. Yeah, As a human race, we learn these skills to be able to be open to what we don't yet understand or don't yet know and to work together in alignment. We could achieve just so much. You just look at some of the medical developments that have been achieved in such a short time frame by the medical specialists all over the world coming together and sharing knowledge Mm -hmm. at the times when they have. Mm. it's that kind of thing to have those skills and that generosity of spirit yeah that's why I did it to create a community well I'm so glad you both did because I I think we need humanity more than ever now particularly in business yes time has flown as ever but would you have recommendations or a last piece of advice for organizations or leaders looking to become deliberately developmental or maybe even transformative Tess Uh, two things I would say have courage Because what you need is within you. And I would say, stop judging yourself and embrace the superpowers that you have. Thank you. I just want to leave a few seconds for our listeners to take that in. Thank you for that. Keith? To step beyond that which you believe to be all that you know. That's absolutely what it would be. And when you do that, uh, remarkable things begin to occur. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your thoughts with us and definitely look out for the second edition of Provoke. If you want to know more about Keith and Tess, transformative facilitation and what Alchemy do, please head over to their website, www.alchemyww.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If so, please head over to iTunes and give us your review. So it's bye from me for now. Thank you once again, Keith and Tess, for sharing your wisdom with us. And thank you, Susie. Thanks, Susie. And we'll see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk.